what's interesting is that a conversation usually gets created in each of the individual industries that have it be that you really think you are doing that of substance. So it's not like you know you're doing wrong or you know you're out of alignment. It's so insidious. It's so uh, prevailing that you don't really argue with it. You know, you think there's something wrong with you because you think you're depressed. You think you're anxious. You think you're afraid. You think you're insomniac. You think you're uh, scattered. You think you can't complete tasks. You think you have mental illness because what you've taken on as a life is no longer aligned with what it really means to be a man in the, you know, in a human skin and, uh, or a human in a man's skin, I should say. And, you know, it's not you. We don't blame a log for burning in a fire. And in many ways, we shouldn't blame ourselves for being confused and crazed inside of a world that is absolutely confusing and crazy, you know, crazy making. All right, Fred, Dr. Fred, Dr. Moss, which one do you prefer, by the way? I forgot to ask. You. Dr. Fred, for sure. Dr. Fred, for sure. Dr. Fred. Okay. Dr. Fred, you are an impressive dude and you've been recommended to me by a lot of different people. And now it's time to talk about finding your voice and a lot of other stuff here. So I'm going to let you run with this because I, I, I'm excited to hear your story in full and for the audience to learn about all the things that you've discovered in your life about growth, transformation, finding your voice, just, just authentic message, yeah. transformation, all that stuff. So let's I love home, it. Man. Where, I love where, where you're at. Start? Yeah, I love where you're at. Um, you know, a lot of people get a one page and they actually land like a chapter or two ago. You're actually right on now. So that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and if what we have to get to is, uh, is true voice and authentic message, that's really what I'm doing all day, every day now. So that's a good place to start. Yeah. And you know, when you're doing a maze, remember in the kid, you know, you got a maze highlights magazine or whatever. And if you wanted to do the maze, if you kind of got tired of bouncing off the wall, the way to do it, is to start from now, start from the center and come on out backwards. Yeah. And so you've done a great job and just already in such a simple introduction, telling people from where I am now. And now we get to really hear my story, which I'm familiar with because I've actually been with me the whole time, <laughs> shockingly, through the whole story. So yeah. it's a good deal because I've always been a witness to what it was that was happening around me, to me and through me and by me. You know, 64 years ago, I was born to a family in uh, K. And I, don't worry, I'm not going to run this 64 years, but it's important to get that I was born to a family um, that was in, you know, disarray and chaos. And I had two older brothers, 10 and 14 years older than me. And from what I could tell and what they've told me since, my parents and my brothers were really looking at, um, hoping that I could bring peace and love and communication and connection and uh, some degree of joy to, and, and, uh, to this chaos. So that I can almost see them just like waiting. I hope, I hope Freddie can do this because someone has to. And so when I arrived, it was like, I hit the time clock, you know, it's like my job was to bring communication and connection to a family that was in chaos. Yeah. And I did a pretty good job, a bundle of joy, you know, a bundle of joy for the first several years until my brothers got sick of me. That's a whole nother story. But uh, you know, I, and, and they taught me how to be pretty precocious. They, I, I knew how to do some math. I knew how to read before I went to kindergarten. Um, and, you know, if you recall, kindergarten is most kids don't know that stuff. They are throwing blocks, picking their nose, you know, and uh, waiting for the afternoon nap. And here I am wanting to read Henry Huggins or, or get a set of flashcards. And, and don't get me wrong, um, Ian, I, I also wanted to throw blocks and pick my nose after all. I mean, five years old, right. that's what I do. 
But I was reading while I was doing that. And I was, you know, what I was really loving is I was loving this notion of communication. I could see the big kids, you know, my brothers and my parents talking to each other. And in fact, by that time, I was a translator for my little sister. And I knew that words and communication were at the center of all, all, you know, all human connection. And so I thought, oh, I get it. I'm going to come to this world and learn how to communicate. And I expected that to happen when I went to school, actually. It didn't happen so much in kindergarten. So I thought, okay, the big kids must know how. Fourth, fifth, sixth grade kids. Started checking them out. And they weren't much better than the kindergartners, actually. So I was like, okay, maybe junior high. In junior high, I'll learn how to communicate. And of course, you know, we step forward. Junior high is just as disappointing as kindergarten in many ways. Let me ask you a quick question. When you say communicate, do you mean actually verbally communicate or do you mean communicate your feelings, your emotions? What what, what do you mean by that? No, I really mean the, the power and the essence. Like, what is this thing that everyone's doing? What are these humans doing? Standing to each other face to face, sharing ideas, sharing thoughts. I can't really understand, but I see that they get some degree of resolution, some degree of reconciliation. They go with each other and get stuff done and then come back and talk more. What is it that these people are doing? Got it. I want to know, what are you doing? Because I want to be really good at that. It looks really fun. It looks like it's something like maybe that's why we're here on earth. Like, I want to know what communication is. So I sought communication like aggressively over all of my early years. And frankly, that's you can hear that I'm still doing that at 64 years old. And the, the deal is, um, you know, the deal is, is that I really got this idea that that each and every time I went through school, communication was not what was being emphasized. In fact, open discourse was being less and less emphasized as I went through school. I was being told, you know, to sit in my seat and listen to the teacher and then regurgitate exactly what they say. It was more of a memory game than a discourse game. Yeah. Yeah. We all know that. And in order to get, you know, in order to get from fourth to fifth grade, you have to have a good memory. You don't have to have good thoughts and ideas. Actually, good thoughts and ideas are not even welcome. I was going to say, they're not, they're not wanted. Because that, that makes they're you not stand wanted. Out. They're not welcome. Yeah. So you learn how to. Well, I don't. You know, there's no elementary school teacher who has now forgotten having Freddie in their class. I was talkative. I was precocious. I was articulate. I was hilarious. So I had a, the backing of my class, and I was like the class clown and the <laughs> smartest kid in the class at the same time. What are you going to yeah, do? Yeah. So, you know, I was teaching others, helping people learn. And, you know, I had kind of had it all in the world. Um, But I could tell that, you know, it was being constricted inside the classroom. And I could really see by that time, you know, we were going through hard times in our in our country, for instance. You know, the Vietnam War is uh, is uh, when I'm 11 years old, is I went to a moratorium march and all that. And I could see that communication was all of what it was about. Well. Fast forward a little bit, and I decided, well, it must be college where you learn how to do this. So I enrolled and registered in a college. I love their helmets. They were only 40 miles away. So I enrolled and registered at the University of Michigan. And I went there. I was like, you know, super excited to finally learn how to communicate. But I was in the engineering school, and it was even worse. You know, it was like, holy cow, I'm not even allowed to say a peep, let alone communicate. After about a year and a half of dealing with that, I'm like, I am so out of here. I'm dropping out. I'm out of here. And I did what any self-respecting 
uh, you know, individual would do in the late seventies. I boarded a Greyhound bus and went to, went to uh, Berkeley, California to see, you know, to catch up with my own life, yeah. to actually see what my life was about. So look- spent the summer in a, in a youth hostel and, you know, it was fun. It was easy and it wasn't easy, but it was easy to communicate, but I did, it was not sustainable. So when people, my parents are like, when people say I dropped out of school because I just, it wasn't for me. It wasn't this. I've never heard anybody mm-hmm. say I dropped out of school because I, I just couldn't, I couldn't get clear communication. Exactly. I, that's a, that's a really interesting theory or just an interesting thing that you did is. It's totally why I dropped out yeah. of school. Yeah. I think There's that's probably no why most people, even most people drop it's out true. because of communication. One, they probably don't understand how to communicate what they want for themselves and then out to other people. So they're just going through the motions. Mm-hmm. Dad, I don't want that. Mom, I used to call my dad from school every day for the first two years and go, Dad, this isn't what I want. I don't want to do this. All and right. you go, okay, I'm listening. Tell me what you do want. And I'd say, yeah. I don't know what it is, but it's not this. And you go, well, All when right. you figure out what you do want, I'll support you on that. Exactly. Other than that, exactly. stay in school. And and I, 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 can, exactly. I can hear that. I never really thought about it like that, though. What's up, guys? I'm so sorry to interrupt the episode. I just need one minute to share with you all the new and exciting, amazing stuff we've got created here at Men on Purpose. First of all, thank you for listening to the podcast and supporting the movement we're creating for all the men of the world. Next, you've got to check out our new website, menonpurpose.net, where you'll find all kinds of cool stuff, including links to our podcast and the free Men on Purpose community. You're also going to find our new free purpose-driven formula mini course and ebook and links to all of our new coaching programs and products. Look, I've had so many of you ask me where to get started with your personal growth journey or where you can go to level up. So I put this thing together, this free ebook and mini course, and we're going to be talking about and coaching you through a really light version of our purpose-driven formula, which is our foundational formula. And for those of you who are ready now, we got you. Listen up, whether it's becoming the best husband, being the best dad, quitting that job that doesn't serve you, or just understanding how to put you first, we've got what you need to align with your authentic self and find that true fulfillment and live a life with no regrets. Look, we're helping men with structure, support, and sustainability. That's what you've asked for, and that's what we deliver. As we lead you through proven and tested curriculum that focuses on formulas to help you get farther faster. So make sure you go to menonpurpose.net, Click the button to download our free, powerful, purpose-driven formula mini course and ebook. And while you're there, make sure you check out some of our amazing products designed to help you find your purpose, stop self-sabotage, and dial in your mindset, skills, and habits to evolve into the best version of you. Why? Because we want you to live and have the best life possible. No regrets. So, mentalpurpose.net, let's get back to the episode. That's exactly how it went, and I had those conversations as well. You know, and when I called from Berkeley, my mom is like, well, come back home, get your degree and then go, you know, then go figure out what your life is about. So back on a Greyhound, I went east all the way back to Detroit and I had heard about this new, um, you know, this new subject, this new topic, this new industry that was growing. And my brothers and my parents were like, you know, you should go try that because they look like there's might be money and future in it. The industry was called computers, and probably you've heard of that yeah. before. And the only computer in the in all of Michigan was at the University of Michigan at that time. So back to the University of Michigan, I went, which was it had a two acre facility called the Computer Building, and I spent day and night there punching cards and batching uh, batching them and hoping that they would run through, and then fixing the cards. You know, sometimes thousands of cards stacked up. I'd bring them up. It was like, oh, I am not doing this either. <laughs> So I did that for like a year and I'm dropped out again. 
Like I'm not, and I came home this time. I'm like, I don't know what's out there, but it's not school. I'm not doing yeah, school yeah. ever again. That's just a silly way to spend life. So my mom this time was kind enough. She's like, oh, like your dad, you know, she's like, all right, that's good. But you do have to get a job. So she got me an application and the application was at a state mental health psychiatric facility for adolescents. And I got a job with adolescent boys. After going through the first three weeks of orientation, I could see that I was getting like paychecks, you know, and then it was like, oh, yeah, the fourth week I went up to the floors and for the first time I was getting paid to communicate. Hmm. That was my job. Just talk. These kids were these kids were six or seven years younger than me. I worked afternoon shift. My job was just to hang out with them and make sure that things yeah. went well. Healing took place. Not only would they heal. I love these kids, man. Not only would they heal. I would heal too. We'd have these conversations that'd be like, oh, that was fun. You know, take them through dinner, take them through field trips, take them through softball. And then, you know, nighttime, give them the snacks, send them to bed, et cetera. And I just had a great time sort of being like a pseudo dad, but a childcare worker. I did that for a while. And the thing I hated about that, and I loved it. I loved the communication aspects. The thing I hated about it, frankly, was psychiatry. You see, psychiatry was called when Jimmy was up too late or Timmy and Tony had gotten a fight and the psychiatrist would come down, interview, you know, Jimmy for like three seconds and then interview us for like seven seconds and then go into the uh, nursing station and take out his uh, his uh, weapon. I'm sorry, his pen. He'd take out his pen and he would write something in a chart. Um, that like would mean that we had to go get Jimmy, haul him into the quiet room, hold him down while he's kicking, biting, screaming, punching, yelling, take his sweatpants down a little bit and slam him full of an injection of adult grade antipsychotic sedative medication, some important combination cocktail and if Jimmy was like stuporous for the next 12 or 24 hours, which was the intended result, we would call that a success. Now, this wasn't a rare occurrence. And just to tell your audience, if in case they don't know, isn't a rare occurrence today either. Unfortunately, no. It's extremely common in hospitals. Being the guy holding him down didn't work for me. And even being an observer that did, it didn't work for me. I had some things, you know, I had some... It doesn't matter. Each and every time I did it, my heart bled. And I finally made it. My, my brother was already a psychiatrist. My brother, 14 years older than me. I was like, I'm going back to psychiatry and I'm going to bring communication into psychiatry because this is some bullshit, yeah. the way this yeah. is going on. Over the next 13 years, that's what I did. I went to Wayne State University, which was my, and I kept my job as a childcare worker over the next nine years. Um, you know, working and moonlighting during medical school and uh, eventually graduated medical school right out in the city of Chicago at Northwestern University downtown. I did learn to communicate in Chicago, but definitely not at medical school. And and voila, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Prozac was introduced to the environment in 1987, and that changed everything. The world doesn't know how much of a left turn we took on the heels of Prozac being introduced to the world. Psychiatry all of a sudden became a biological field. Psychiatry was no longer about communication. It was about chemical imbalances. And the truth is, I, I was like, wait, wait, 
wait, I, 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 communication is where healing comes from. And now when I graduate, all of a sudden I need to be an expert psychopharmacologist, which is the last thing I wanted to do when I went into school. I'm like, man, this, this is not what I had in mind. I'm behind enemy lines. Over the next 20 or really, frankly, 32 years, I had over 40,000 patients that would at least for a moment call me their doctor. And I wrote for well over 100,000 medication Mm. prescriptions. Each and every one I wrote was a soul sacrifice. Each time I did it, I was like, man, this shit doesn't work. It sure doesn't work like it's marketed to. What was like, well, why did you keep compromising that? It's my job. It's my job, man. Same reason you give people, you know, fried chicken at Kentucky Fried Chicken, because that's what they they came here to ask. And it's like, oh, there you go. Why not have like, why not over that time period build up enough integrity or resolve that like you, that, that burning desire inside of you just keeps getting hotter and hotter until one day you're like, Hey man, I'm out. Why did it take so long? That's exactly what happened, Ian. That's exactly what happened in 2006. That moment happened. I call that my truth. That's a long time though. It is, dude. It's hard to do something different than the status quo inside of the American medical system. Talk about that for a second, because there are a lot of guys listening and they are, you know, we deal with a lot like in the, in the masterminds and our coaching programs and our retreats, we deal a lot with helping guys find their purpose, find their mission, find their vision, real vision, authentic stuff for their lives. Mm Mm-hmm. And the challenge yeah. is that a lot of people have, have their job as their identity and they go, look, I, I, I go against the yeah. status quo because I drink seven days a week or I gamble or I cheat on my wife or I do this. So I'm not going against the status quo that can interrupt the flow of that precious dollar that comes in that makes me feel good and makes me the better husband and makes me provide this house and that car for my wife and that school for my kids. How does somebody push on that to not have to take as much time as it did for you or I and, and actually make those turns, you know, Mm -hmm. like align with their integrity, align with their real true calling or, or real voice. Right. Right. It's a really, really great question. You know, we get eased into it insidiously. And you know, the thing is, there's not just some guys listening who are feeling that I would say that most of the men who are listening to this show today are feeling that in some way. In some ways, the American, you know, the American system has it that the only reason that you ever get paid for a job is that you wouldn't do the damn job if you weren't getting paid. That's the whole point. That's what the that's that's why you get paid. And it's almost it's almost uh, directly proportional to that. So as a doctor, you get paid enough money to shut the hell up. You get and not every doctor is even aware that they're out of alignment because medical school is meant to wash all that stuff out of you that you used to think was true and give you an entirely new vocabulary and then catapult you to the very top of the country's like, you know, respected individuals. So, you know, all I have to do is flash my MD and people want to talk to me. I'm like, okay, you think my MD is worth it? I mean, it's not, you know, people, no, really, you earn the respect to be listened to. Well, not every MD has learned the respect to be listened to. And I get it. The entire American medical system, you know, when you are, and again, for all you doctors out there, you're probably respectful and well worth listening to because you're actually watching this show or being with this show. 
if you got an alignment issue where you're thinking that this show is aligned with what you're up to, or even if it's just creating hopes, wishes, and dreams, then you probably got something to say. And I think he and I will be talking about mm -hmm. this in just a moment. So ultimately, there's so many people doing their job that is inconsistent with who they would be if they were aligned in their own integrity. There are so many people doing things that they know are not exactly consistent with who they know themselves to be. What otherwise. would you say the percentage is? There's, I just want to know from you. Oh my goodness. Over I 70. agree. I think I was going to say 85. Their whole life is a, is a fucking sham. But it's, but it's, it's exactly, a, it's, dude. my wife and I talk about this all the time. Being in LA, you know, LA, LA is, is the definition of the simulation that we're in, right? It is a simulation. Mm -hmm. These, these real estate prices and gas prices and the crazy shit that people like invent to, for other people to spend money on is, is the simulation. How much of it is actually real? Yeah. And when I say real, I mean, how much of it is actually needed for a human to actually do something in this world? But because those humans, and by the way, audience, if you're offended by this, it's you. So call me, call Dr. Dr. Fred, we'll help you. Like those humans don't want to do something of substance. They, they would rather stay over here because it's more comfortable. And it's strange to see. Well, what's interesting is that a conversation usually gets created in each of the individual industries that have it be that you really think you are doing that of substance. So it's not like you know you're doing wrong or you know you're out of alignment. It's so insidious. It's so uh, prevailing that you don't really argue with it. You know, you think there's something wrong with you because you think you're depressed. You think you're anxious. You think you're afraid. You think you're insomniac. You think you're uh, scattered, you think you can't complete tasks, you think you have mental illness, because what you've taken on as a life is no longer aligned with what it really means to be a man in the, you know, in a human skin, and, uh, or a human in a man's skin, I should say. And, you know, it, it's not you, we don't blame a log for burning in a fire. And in many ways, we shouldn't blame ourselves for being confused and crazed inside of a world that is absolutely confusing and crazy, you know, crazy making. So, you know, in 2006, it actually, I needed a kick in the ass, a huge kick in the ass. And I took some major, huge kicks in the ass in 2006. And at that time, I really got to relook as whether or not I wanted to continue being a psychiatrist, what I was going to do now that I was divorced, what I was going to do now that I had back surgery. Lots of things happened in, in 2006. I was like, I'll tell you what, I'll go back to being a psychiatrist but I'm only doing it under the conditions that I have. I'm going to do it a little bit my way. So I started taking people off of medicine in 2006. As radical as that sounds, it's hilarious that it's radical. It's much more radical to make a decision to drop toxic medications down the throat of people who are miserable in a world that is miserable. I'm like, well, there's nothing wrong with you. you got, you're dealing with really miserable things, but you come in here, you know, I'm the last stop. You've you know, you've come through your social worker, your psychologist, your clergy, and they said, go to a psychiatrist. So you come to me and you're like, please, please, please give me an antidepressant or an anti. And I'm like, I'm the only one who can provide it. Speaking of Kentucky Fried Chicken, it would be like being a raw vegan, organic vegan at Kentucky yeah. Fried Chicken. Yeah. What am I supposed to do? You know, I'm like, can I get me a three piece with a biscuit? I'm like, you shouldn't be <laughs> eating any of that. It shouldn't be. 
There's no pieces of that you should be eating, but I work here. But I want to let you know you should be raw and vegan and organic, and you're not doing any of those. Can you go home and try that first? I would be fired in an instant. Why do most people, so I was that guy from five years old, really a little younger than that, who was on Ritalin and then all these other things, right? Oh, wow. I'm depressed this time, antidepressant. I'm anxious about this, anti-anxiety. I'm, I'm, I'm over here. You got, you got a mood disorder. You got major ADHD. You got this. You got that. And I'm like, holy shit. How, how does a kid get stuck with that? How are the medical professionals that treated me not more professional to say, hey, something in your environment Something else is going on. What's your diet like? What's happening in your world? What are you putting in besides these pills that are jacking you up? And I look at that and I go, how is it that people just accept the fact that the pill will solve their problems? Are people that lazy and that inept and non-accountable that they can't actually find a way to get the work done on their own? It's a, you know, I hear what you're saying. And when we, you know, I've learned over time in 2006, lazy, inept, and, and non-accountable would have been easily <laughs> and I've been words there. that I use. But the, yeah, these days I, I, um, I tend to veer away from, from derogatory statements about people because the system is so gorgeously yeah. built to have it be that that's just the way things go. If your child can't sit down in a chair, which little Freddie had, you weren't me watching me sit down in a chair very much. Um, my mom, I'm sure, protected me from getting into a psychiatrist and Ritalin and all that. Um, you know, if, if you're scattered, if you're afraid, if you're anxious, if you're depressed, and you know, and then in the meantime, you're eating a ton of sugar or, t- or pounding down McDonald's or, uh, watching, you know, stupid TV or, or whatever else you're doing that is leading to that. And in fact, you have a life that is anxiety provoking or depressed provoking, then there's nothing wrong with you. And frankly, there's usually and almost always nothing wrong with the people who yeah. think that there's something wrong with them. So in 2006, when I started doing this, I had some amazing results. I took my lower risk patients, took them off of their medicine, including Prozac, and voila, not only were they better, but their diagnosis disappeared. I was like, wow, you don't need to come here anymore. Isn't that great? They're like, yeah, we don't need to come here. We're good. We did that with a couple hundred people. I had several thousand people that were in my practice. And then I started expanding to a little bit less high risk. I mean, less low risk, you know, a little bit medium risk people. And they also got better. And I learned a lot about the idea that the medicines and the treatment actually perpetuate the conditions they're marketed to deal with. Now, this should come as no surprise. I don't really get a lot of pushback here. And I want to make one disclaimer, which is really critical. If anyone in this audience has actually believed that they have what they have, you know, they have the condition that they have, they're very happy to be diagnosed with it. They love the treatment and the clinician that's taking care of them. They think that their life is optimal and you know, they're taking a few different medicines and they believe they found the right cocktail and they're working and being, you know, with a family and they love their life. Well, then what I'm saying doesn't apply to them. It's fine. Like if you actually found that shit, like, <laughs> man, yeah, more power to you. Like, however you got there, good for you. Do please do not change horses in midstream. Please yeah. keep what you got. I'm actually speaking this conversation to the other hundreds of millions of people who aren't in that crowd. Yeah. Hundreds of millions, Ian. 
people who know they're getting screwed over, people who know that life could be a lot bigger, people who know that they're muted or muffled or stifled by their medicines, by their treatment, who are no longer really speaking that which is important to them because they've already been told that they're not worth listening to. I'm speaking to those people. Now, over that that correction or that direction from 2006 all the way through to 2016, talk about a maze, which we talked about earlier, walking out of the medical industry, for which I was deeply in the center of it, um, you know, like, uh, you know, tipping my hat as I'm walking backwards, you know, like, uh, okay, uh, yeah, thank you. I think I'll be leaving now. It took me about yeah, 10 well, years to get there. <laughs> and, it, and, you know, each and every time I, I would run into some, you know, some resistance. And, uh, you know, if I, whenever I did consults or something, I'd be like, you know, I learned a lot about how the industry really, really, really promotes itself as having psychopathological uh, patients and customers. In fact, every single customer that comes into a psychiatrist has to be pathological. Otherwise, a psychiatrist won't get paid. So if the psychiatrist can't give you a diagnosis, he wouldn't get paid. He or she wouldn't get paid. So they're forced to give you some diagnosis. And now that becomes permanent on your medical record. So it's fine because most people are really, really, really happy to get a diagnosis if they go to a psychiatrist. I mean, you go to a barbershop enough times, which apparently yes. I have, then you get a haircut. You go to a psychiatrist enough time, you're going to get yourself a diagnosis. When you get that diagnosis, we got a treatment waiting for you on the side. It's probably some sort of medicine. But if it's not, we got some clinical treatment that's available for you because clearly there's something wrong with you because you're unhappy or uncomfortable. I began to really look at that over and over every single day. How can I make sense of this? What is my job? And you know what? This was a heavy burden. There were times when I was like, man, I need to quit. I need to stop. I need to go, you know, open up a coffee shop somewhere or, you know, like have some sort of conversational job where I can just give up on this nonsense. But I hung in there, you know, there's golden handcuffs. There's, you know, I'm in debt or I got, you know, it's not bad being a doctor. Some little places, it's not bad, you know. How can I be a doctor where I can do what I wanted to do at Fairlawn Center back in the day, which was to bring communication to the center of the, yeah. you know, the mental health world. Over time, man, psychiatry became typecast as where you send someone when communication doesn't work. Not to have a communication with psychiatry. They don't even teach psychotherapy yeah. in, in, in residency Or nutrition, anymore. for that matter. It, it, right. Or nutrition. No, exactly. All they really do is like they give us the pharmacopoeia and they let us, you know, medicate. And apparently that's our special skill because we're the only profession that's allowed to do that in the whole mental health facility. So then I became really great at that, but there's nothing about being great at being great at doing something horrible is not called being great. And I became really good at it. I'm really good with psychiatric medicine. I can tell you anything you want to know about how that stuff gets marketed and dosages and the drug drug interactions and when to use what, where. Let me ask you a quick that. question. I'm not happy. About, about, you you kind of, yeah. there's, there's two things that came up when you were talking before about the agenda of professionals. Uh, you have to get a diagnosis yeah. or they don't get paid. How much did you see that? And by the way, yeah. I'm not trashing medications. I found that medications, no, no, no. Uh, they, they help me to get space and relieve pressure to allow some of the work that I was doing on me to take. 
they, they some medications were okay. actually okay for me. I just didn't want them long term because they had all these other side effects. You know, like that's what that's what I felt was was yeah, like effects. Effects. Yeah. Effects. I, effects. I was I was um I wanted I remember saying to a a, a psychiatrist I was seeing in two thousand and like five. It can't be the only answer. The medicine can't be the only answer. And in 2006, my journey of understanding the mind and understanding how neuroplasticity works, that started. It, because the doctor was like, this is what you got, man. Like, monitor your breathing and you got the medication. I'm sorry, you were born different. You were born with different chemical makeup, yes. different wiring. You're going to be on yes. this medication forever or you're going to face yes. the other effects without the medication it's your call exactly but that was it exactly that was it That's and guess right. what there was no like hey by the way in six months yep. i'm gonna graduate you it was I'll see you for the next 25 years and and i had a problem with that like i yeah. i i have clients that stay yeah. with me because they like all the way that i build our stuff it, it can hit it can hit you and help you at every phase but i didn't love the agenda of the professionals that i was seeing one to to provide medication really only and two to keep me in the system forever i just didn't like that is that what you saw <laughs> all day every day you know all, all day every day <laughs> so yeah you know um the system is you know no very very few uh capitalistic systems are built on the idea that you work yourself out of a job and uh, that's what I started to do. I started. I just got it that I was. My heart was more important to me. My heart started being more important to me than the job I had. Now the thing is, is you do run across some very odd resistance. For instance, the only subspecialty in medicine where if you tell somebody there's nothing wrong with them, they get furious. Why is that? Like if I tell some, someone comes, someone is psychiatry. If someone comes to my office and wants to know what's wrong with them, and I say actually nothing. In most situations, like if you go to a cardiologist or a proctologist or an ophthalmologist and you ask them what's wrong with you and you say nothing, yes, it's like, yes. great. I'm so happy to hear that. Huh. Not true. Not true in psychiatry. If some, if you tell somebody there's nothing wrong with that, right. they just freak out and they go find another psychiatrist next door to tell them that what is wrong with them. Because ultimately what we're doing here, Ian, is as men and as women, you know, we're relinquishing the responsibility for our life. Now, again, not for the crew that's actually found their, their, their trueness through this process. It's the other hundreds of millions. We're relinquishing the responsibility for our life if we're habitually doing something that we otherwise don't like about ourselves. For instance, if we are scattered, we're not meeting deadlines, we're yelling at our wife, we're drinking too much, we're staying up too late, we're uh, getting fat, we're, um, you know, afraid, or we're nervous about the future, or we're depressed about the past. We like to think that that must mean that something came and bit us. You know, that there's something wrong, like a disease, like a special, you know, like, like invisible disease came down called depression. No, it's just not really how it is. So, but, but if I could blame you for all the mistakes that I could make today, like if I got, sorry, honey, but you know, I talked to Ian today and he's responsible for all the mistakes I'm about to make for the rest of the day. I would do it in a second. Dude, you can have all my mistakes. I'll take credit for the stuff I'm doing right. But if I, if I cheat on my wife and I can blame you, 
or if I uh, spend too much money and I can blame you, or if I stay in bed too long, or if I'm late to work, or if I don't get my deadline in that, I can blame you. I'm going to do it. Instead of blaming you, though, Ian, what most people do is they blame their psychiatric, their newly received sure. psychiatric diagnosis. That's not me. That's my bipolar, honey. That's not me. I got attention deficit disorder. That's not me. I have post-traumatic stress disorder. I got generalized anxiety. Have you heard? I got social phobia. Yay! What the yay is, is it gives people the capacity to blame the stuff that they're doing that they're not proud of on a condition rather than taking accountable responsibility for their own actions. Now, I know you've done a lot of men's work. I, too, I do a lot of men's work. I'm involved in several different men's, uh, men's agencies now, you know, Mankind Project or Metal International, you know. And this idea of taking accountability for your life, especially mm -hmm. when you're being an asshole, it takes something. It takes some courage. It takes some brotherhood. It takes some reality, some honesty. You know, the truth is the habits, the addictive habits or the counterproductive habits or self-sabotaging habits I have, they're mine. They have nothing to do with a mental illness. They are just simply the way it is to be a human in the present day, you know, day and time. And it takes something to want to get there. So we're going to fast forward a little bit to how important it is to find to come in line with our authentic voice. We moved to about 2016. And over those years, those 10 years, I've been a nomad. I'm all over the world, literally. I'm doing telepsychiatry long before it was popular, you know, via computers and modems. And uh, I'm all over the country doing locums work. I left Cincinnati and, you know, just kind of that's where and I just I'm just all over learning everything I can about psychiatry at a world scale. And uh, in 2016, I create Welcome to Humanity, which is a kind of a self-explanatory situation now, which basically says what I'm saying, which is every single experience, whether it's uncomfortable or miserable or whether it's perfect and ecstatic, yeah. uh, is part of being human. Like it's, like, it's all good. It's all good. It's all part of being human. Welcome to humanity, you know? And step up, Welcome to Humanity. Oh, you feel terrible. You screwed up today. You're you're you, you just lost a lot of money or you just made some bad mistakes. There's almost no circumstances yeah. where welcome to humanity. Yeah. Even especially for the negative ones, especially for the negatively. And so, you know, ones. it's your process. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Including all of them that are going on right now. You think of that one or that one or that one or that one, you know, we got the medical issues or the climate issues or the war issues or the sex trafficking issues or the racism issues. It's like, I don't mean to diminish how powerful all of those things really are. And they do threaten our entire planet, each and every one of them, like they could take us down individually. But what's really important here is to get that we are humans. And unless we speak our true voice authentically, we're not going to be able to touch any of those anyways. So the greatest threat to all of the planet at this point is that our voices are being contracted and constricted and we're being stifled and we're okay with it. If we can't speak our true voice, then no one will ever know us. If we can't speak a voice at all, then no one will ever hear us. Now, if we don't speak our voice, we can be herded for sure. And that is happening. We're being herded and we're choosing not to speak because nowadays it's become frightening to say that what you mean. Going back to little Freddie and his little six-year-old experience, 
we learned a long time ago that pretending to be someone that we're not actually is protective of who we are. That's no longer the case. And that's what's happening in all these industries that you're talking about. People are pretending like, you know, people who steal your money, I'm sorry, who are, who charge you for stuff that they're providing that they know is not helping you. They're not bad people. That's their job. I love those dudes. I love them just as much if that's what they're doing. That's just their job. That's what they've learned to do. That's their job in the system. We have learned that being inauthentic actually somehow provides a protection from the heartache and pain of being ourselves. Now, the good news, that's really bad news, right? That's about the most absurd shit ever. This idea that being someone else or acting like you're someone else in order to protect the person that you are is a good idea is just ridiculous. It's about the most absurd thing yeah. that any human could possibly think of. Yet we all are doing it at a various levels and we learned it from a very young age. So today what's happened, and again, we moved through Welcome to Humanity. We moved through this thing I called Global <laughs> Madness, where I was going to be the Anthony Bourdain of mental health and go around the world and see how mental illness was, you know, mental illness is a, a function yeah. of the culture that it arises from. It's not real. Like if you have a broken arm, you're in Singapore, it's called a broken arm. You have a broken arm, you're in like Tallahassee, it's still called yeah. a broken arm. If you're in like Tokyo... It's it, what it's called yeah. there is a broken arm. If you have mental illness in Little Rock, Arkansas, it might not look like mental illness. That same condition in Zimbabwe might not be mental illness. Yeah, even in Reykjavik, it might not be mental illness. How about Johannesburg? So it might about not be mental illness. Are we talking about location and environment? Environment. Right. And it becomes arbitrary in all of those environments. All you have to be is outside the middle range of what's accepted as what? Normal or, it, here's the thing. None of these cultures ever even define normal. I'm still looking for a good definition <laughs> of what normal is. subjective at every step. And if we don't have it's subjective the every 10 feet, what? Is, it's subjective. Like in this city, it's, 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 it's an opinion every 10 feet. Of course. Yeah. So if it's, if we don't know what normal is, we got some serious audacity trying to get, trying to yeah. label yeah. people as being. Not so normal. I want to go back for a second. Cause I want to point something out. You talk about little Freddie. I'm talking about little Ian, yeah. six years old, five years old. When we were in school, we, we were, we were kindred spirits. We we're not sitting down. We're marked as defiant, marked as the bad kid, talkative, imp imp impolite, oppositional, impulsive, you name it, all those keywords. Which, by the way, it's really fucked up yeah. to tell yeah. a five-year-old that you're the bad kid in class, you're the bad apple, and that you're negatively influencing the rest of the class. That is a really bad thing. But then you fast, you, then you fast forward. Like my daughter is. Is, is an identical replica of me. And I put her in a different environment. And she Good. is Good flourishing because nobody in the school environment that she's in would ever right. say any of that. Plus, she's not locked to a desk with her eyes forward for eight hours a day. So the environment is massive. And I just want to give the audience that example. Mm -hmm. We are, I'm telling you, we are, we, we have the same like body build, attitude, skin tone, hair color, you name it. We look alike. <laughs> we are the same attitude in person. 
and because of the environment, she is more powerful than I was at six years old because her attributes, her, her, her powers have been taken and elevated and taught to her how to actually work with them. Whereas I was just shooting laser beams all over the room and then being told I'm bad for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Alternative schooling, whether it be, I, I'm not sure which, which one you're using, but you know, Montessori it's or using like Montessori some of the case. others. Um, yep. Uh, yeah. It, 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 you know, really take, it really allows for the, you know, the, um, you know, Rudolf Steiner, there's, there's people, there's people who have allowed for the absolute growth and yep. development of humans like they're supposed to grow. And Rudolf Steiner was, you know, just was somebody who was a real pioneer in that area. And we're still, we're still living on the heels in the, uh, you know, the, um, the wake of his, his remarkable presence in the universe. Um, again, if, if you're finding yourself being pretentious, if you're finding yourself being duplicitous, if you're finding yourself not speaking when you know you have something to say, if you're finding yourself actually saying stuff that you don't believe, which is even more absurd. Um, the good news is, is that you don't have to be a prisoner of the, of the habits that got you to today. You just don't. You don't need your next move to be a mimic of all the times that your last move was. You can actually cut left instead of cutting right on the next path. You actually can go straight or stop. You can say something you've never said, and you can do things you've never done, and you can do that from the domain that is called now. You don't need to go uh, live in Tibet. You don't need to join an ashram. You don't have to you know, sit under a Bodhi tree. You don't even need to sit on a couch for nine or 10 or 12 years. You don't need to give up all your material possessions. You don't need to find yourself a new wife or a new yeah. city. You don't need to do any of that. Right now, you could start doing something different. Or you know what? Not even say, start doing something different. Just somebody in their car different. is going, okay, and what is that? What what do you what can someone do that's different? What what can change trajectory? Well, here's the thing. Once you start you know when you're not speaking your truth. You know when you're misaligned. And you just have to deal with that every day. Everyone knows. No, anyone who says, I don't know where I'm misaligned, yes, you do. You definitely know where you're misaligned. If you just ask your real self, where are you inconsistent with what you know to be a truth or a pathway that would be best for you? Everyone knows that because the truth resonates with the truth. When you start doing things that are closer and closer to your truth, you get this harmony or this uh, connection, this resonance with others and yourself, knowing that what you're saying, what you're doing, who you're being is actually consistent with that, which matters to you. You know when you're inconsistent. Now, sometimes it's a little bit tricky. So what we really help people do in True Voice, the course that I've developed, it's just being rolled out this week at truevoicepodcasting.com is really give people all sorts of access. That course is a six module, 18 lesson, 54 prompt, you know, 60 page workshop or workbook. It's a way of really digging in to get to where is that authentic self of ours? 
It's not like I'm already my authentic self. I'm, I'm very concerned about anybody who says that, including me. I'm can't already be. my authentic self. What do you? What, no, what do you do? What are you even talking about? You know, no, no, you're not. And there's and there's deeper levels to take. Some of us are more authentic than others. People tell me I'm authentic. I'm like, okay, if you would, if you lived in me, you wouldn't think I what's was. What's that? What's that difference though? Like there, I, I think you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty authentic. authentic. I think I'm, I think I'm really authentic. Is there a difference between authenticity I think and genuineness, or are they kind of the same? Really great question. You know, I think it's an access to things that really matter to you, sort of that. You know the Ian that was that that was there when you were six years old. That's still here now. The exact the exact unchanged Ian that's you that was there when you were six. Like this one thing. Like I remember that guy. That's, you know, every single cell in your body yeah. has been turned over so many times since you were six. The one who's still here and hasn't been turned over at all. This thing maybe some people call a God. soul. That's you. Okay, that's a you. You're not your emotions. You're not your body. You're not your feelings. You're not your thoughts. You're not your dreams. You're not your physical sensations. You're none of that. What you are is there's a you that is really there that recalls what little Ian in first grade was when he was told that he was disrupting the class or whatever. There is something about just stepping into your truth. Now, when given access to truth, some people think, okay, I'm going to go tell my mother-in-law how much I hate her. Well, that isn't what I'm talking about at all. It's not just a matter of blurting. It's a matter of really listening, looking around. What does this environment want from me? What is this person saying for which I can move a conversation forward by expressing myself? What can be done? So The Creative Eight was the first book that I wrote. And that book looks at multiple ways to express oneself that are beyond just vocality like you and I are doing now. So art, music, dancing, singing, drama, cooking, writing, and gardening were the creative eight. Still are. Art, music, dancing, singing, drama, cooking, writing, gardening, you know. I've added a couple since then, photography and cleaning. And then ultimately there is a uh, trump card. And the trump card is called helping anyone do anything. Being of service. Help anyone do anything. Help anyone do anything. When you're down and out, when you're depressed, when you're uh, confused. If you really want to pull out of that in an instantaneous way, get your ass out of bed, get yourself off the chair, put down that beer and go help anybody do anything. During the time that you're providing, you know, some people really like soup kitchens. Other people really like, like, you know, nursing homes. I, it doesn't have to be anything that formal. You could go next door and, 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 you know, help somebody, uh, get their groceries or cut their lawn or shovel their walk, whatever you want to do. You could help someone yeah. sharpen a pencil for God's sake. And that would be fine. While you're doing it, you're going to notice that your negative, uncomfortable, unpleasant experiences absolutely fade away while you're in service. You say, Oh yeah, they come right back when I'm done. Um, they don't come back. You re yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You re, mm, you return them. You you know you recollect them. Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's I've had this conversation with people who say like you know I, I can't get out of bed in the morning. My covers feel like concrete, and I'll say I get it. I've been there, and it's not a it's not about going into the office. It's about your feet hitting the ground and then stepping into the bathroom and taking a piss and brushing your teeth and like step by step. 
And then the same thing I'll say to them, being of service doesn't mean donating a million dollars. Being of service means holding a door for somebody that's two seconds farther out than your standard for letting the door go or just smiling at somebody or I, who knows? Like I, like I always, uh, whenever I bring my trash cans in from my end of my driveway, my neighbors are like in their eighties and I'll just take their, take them up there. Cause the driveway is kind of steep. I'll just take the cans up. It's like an extra 10 feet for me, but it's an extra 30 feet that the guy doesn't have to walk down his hill driveway and back up in his, and he's 88 years old. And I, he doesn't know that I do that. I mean, unless he sees me on the camera, he doesn't know it's me and I don't need him <laughs> to know. I just know that I feel better knowing that I'm easing a little of his pain today or his burden or his yeah. restriction today. You know, you bring up a really good point. His pain, his burden, his restriction. Look, yeah. even if he's 28, still, we can be sure, we can be sure that he has pain, burden, and restriction. Going back to that Bodhi tree, that dude sat underneath a Bodhi tree. And when he was done, he came up with, look, I got rid of most of all the problems of the world. But one thing I realized is that life is miserable. I mean, I, that's oversimplifying, of course, the Bodhi sure. tree guy, but it's pretty similar, close enough. Sure. You're going to have misery. You're going to have pain. You're going to have grief and death. Okay. So you want to ease someone, you want to make a difference in this world, just help somebody do anything. And ultimately, if you start looking at that and you start realizing that you can express yourself because most mental illness, most mental illness is a function of not expressing yourself or not being able to listen to others, choosing not to listen to others, choosing not to communicate. At the center of all healing is this notion of human connection. Human connection is the foundation and heart of all healing, of all conditions, of all types everywhere. And human connection can be made by anyone. You absolutely don't need to have an MD. In fact, you don't need to have any degree. You don't even need to have gone to school. You can absolute. In fact, if you didn't go to school, you're probably way better at human better. connection than yeah. those of us who got washed up in school. Yep. Um, the idea here is that human connect. Why are we having a podcast? The reason we're having a podcast is we both just just like love human connection. Guess what? We're part of 7.8 billion people who love human connection. Yeah. I don't like people. Some people, I don't like people. I get it. You don't love people. You don't like people because all efforts up until now have been ineffective of actually connecting or you've had your heart broken in periods of time when you've tried to connect. Yeah. And, and that's something I wanted to ask you real quick. There's, it's interesting because people will say you're so much different in person than you are like on your podcast or on video. And I'll say, I'm an extroverted introvert. I, I don't, the connection that I, I like is different than the connection you like. I don't like bars and loud restaurants and sporting events. I like this kind of connection one-on-one -on -one, or taking a walk in my neighborhood with a friend of mine or going surfing or anything like that where it's not 50 people. It's just one-on-one. -on -one. And when there's a microphone here, I'm able to just be fully me because I'm not thinking about or walking or doing all these other things. It's just us. And that's why I right. love the, the, the power of podcasting because it's exactly. it allowed me to be me. Well, let's go right there to the power of podcasting. Yeah. I told you that the name of my course is, uh, is the True Voice. It's called the True Voice course. It was called True Voice Podcasting. The three first three cohorts that have successfully completed it, the first 60 people who have graduated and all of them really are, 
I have testimonials from each and every one of them that just have it be that they love the course, really points to this last remaining vestige that podcasting is in a place for which one can actually deliver and be with other people's true voice. It's not so true in the social media after all. You know, there are places where you can get censored and canceled pretty quickly in the algorithm. Yeah. Here in, in podcast land, that's not here yet. And you can actually speak openly and honestly to a true voice. So we gather up here. Finding that true voice and being really, really authentic and like you said, really uh, genuine, really honest with what really matters to you. Even if it isn't about big topics, you know, it can be about, I like to joke, it can be about like petunias in Arkansas, which might be a big topic to people. You can name, you don't, you don't have to name your podcast Men on Purpose. That's a big, bold name. It is. You can name your podcast, you know. Uh, Ian talks to people. Anything. But yeah. You can name it anything. As long as you're showing up in your show as an authentic soul, actually speaking from your heart, you're going to be very attractive to a whole large group of people. Yeah, yeah. And being very attractive isn't in order to make a lot of money. But if you want to make a lot of money as a podcaster, it's actually available. And if you want to make a living being a podcaster, even that's available. What we have to do first, though, is really help people find their true voice. And this thing about true voice, you know, teaching the creative eight, um, you know, because it's incorporated in the course and then, you know, teaching other ways to communicate. And, and, and my new book, in my newer book, I know it's shocking title. I worked hard for this title. I hope you give me some some leeway here. The, the name of the title is Find Your True Voice. That's it. Love so it. find your true voice. Shocking, right? It's findyourtruevoicebook.com. Your listeners want a copy of that book. It takes a deeper dive into this. And I'm going to send them a hard copy of the book with, a, a, you know, and I'll cover shipping as long as it's here in the U.S. So findyourtruevoicebooks.com is a way to get my book. And you, the course is really built on that as well. You get access to a you know to an exclusive community. You get a web a, a, a mastermind with me a couple times a month, and what you really get is a new access to this thing that probably has been superficial for a while called you. <laughs> a new way to look at a new way to look at life, a new way to bring your real self, a new way to make a difference in the world. That's what we provide with that course, and that's what each and every one of us. I don't care what your thoughts are. The content that drips out of your mouth about that or that or that, I don't, whatever. That's good. The content is not the point. Authenticity trumps agreement. Meaning, have you ever noticed that if you're with somebody who's diametrically opposed on one of these divisive issues that are floating around our world these days and diametrically opposed to who, to what your thoughts are, but they're speaking from their heart. If they're speaking from their heart, have you noticed that you could actually have a conversation and respect what they're saying, no yep. matter what they're saying, even if it's 100% against like, you? 100%. Yep. Like a, like a political conversation I don't like to get into, yet if somebody is speaking from their heart and not trying to be right, I'm all in. I just want you to understand my point of view, and I'm going to understand yours. We never have to agree. I just want you to just... Tell me what you think, but don't be angry and try and prove me wrong. That That is not right. available. That's what you're saying, right? Right. Yeah. Just be curious. Be in wonder. Start from the beginning, yeah. you know, 
Like really listen, like really listen, set aside your judgment, set aside your evaluations, your assessments, your, you know, your set aside what's already here, which is this, you know, we look at people and we're constantly judging people, whether they're worth listening to or worth paying attention to. Consider the possibility that all relevant parties are worth listening to. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe especially the ones that you have trouble hearing. If you're going to make a difference in this world, you're going to have to take into consideration those people who disagree with you, like categorically. Of course. Of course. There is that big piece, though, that I always say, if we can have an open discussion about what we both see, no problem. We can have open discussion all day long. But the moment you try and tell me about your opinion and why I should believe it, I'm not I'm not into that conversation. I'm completely checking out, completely checking out. Unless I'm like, you know what? I'm interested. Tell me more, man. I might come over to your side. Then give it to me. But if I'm like, cool, man, I respect your decision. That's awesome. So, Dr. Fred, this has been great, man. Good hour. Been a good hour. Thank you. Yeah, this thing, this thing ramped so nicely. I've got some really great notes. Don't be a prisoner of your past habits is the name of this Mm -hmm. episode. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah, nope. I love it. You, yeah, you don't have to be a prisoner of the habits that got you here. That's right. Yeah, and I think that's um, appropriate. You know, It'll be a good catch. Where can people find you again? Findyourtruevoicebooks.com. That'll get you your book. Okay. That'll get you the, my book. And then the course is really what, what I'm really excited about. You can find that at truevoicepodcasting.com. And although I don't always like to go to three places, I'm going to go to third place, which is my email, drfred at welcometohumanity.net. That's Dr. Fred at welcome to humanity.net and my uh, soon to be obsolete, um, but we're working on it to stay in, in pace with me. My soon to be obsolete website is welcome to humanity.net. Got it. I really love these combinations. I love talking on podcasts. I love being a guest. I'm an expert speaker as well. I like taking small groups into this topic. I like finding out what's in the way of uh, being true voice. So if someone's got expert if someone's got room for an expert speaker inside of small, medium, large group or corporations, we need to align with each other. We need to become allies, et cetera. I love speaking to that group. Now, here's the other thing, Ian. You speak to men here. You know, there's a lot of men who are listening. Yeah. And this is not a matter of me just ringing the bell. Oh, isn't Dr. Fred interesting? No, I already know I'm interesting. <laughs> who gives a shit? Bit. Yeah. So yeah, I'm interesting. Okay. Like I don't think I'm interesting, by the way. I just been with me the whole time. But I understand that most people think I'm interesting. Right. That's how that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> Who gives a shit? Right. What I what I represent is something that is so urgent in this world. If we can't find our true voice, dude, the future is pretty bleak. Mm-hmm. The future for our kids, for their kids, for us. If we can't, this is not just another widget I'm selling. I'm not trying to sell you that a Cadillac's a better car. I'm telling you this is what's required to make a difference in humanity, but also to make a difference in your household or in your company or in your life. If you continue to lie or to be pretentious or to be duplicitous or to not speak when you know you should, uh, life's not going to go that good for you. No, a lot of regrets. And- Henry David Thoreau, you know, he says, uh, let's see, the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation and go to their graves with the song still in them. Great tragedy. Voltaire 
says, I may not agree with what it is you have to say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Yeah. And that's the way it is. That's the way it is. Both those guys are pretty smart, and both those quotes are pretty tight, and I stand by those. And I'm not great at it either. I judge. <laughs> I judge, and I try to con- – look, the shit that I think I know is trumped by the shit that I know that I know. Yeah. And the stuff that I know that I know, I think everyone should know. If you disagree with what I know that I know, I'm going to pound it at you. I mean, I know that I know it. It's just the way it is. So I really ask people to, you know, consider the possibility that you don't even know what you know that you know. It's possible to back out of that. Just be curious. Yeah, I love it. Listen, listen, listen. Love it. That's a great place to end. Just be curious. Thanks for being on here. Really enjoyed getting to know you. And and I'm a metal member, by the way. Oh, I didn't even know yeah. that. Sam, Sam got me in. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Who? Sam. Oh, Sam. Sam's your dude. Sam's my best and, friend. And uh, Dave Richmond, who I had on a couple weeks ago. He was, his episode was out two weeks ago. He, he was in. So I will see you in there. Just uh, For sure. Yeah, I, I really, um, really appreciate you being here. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's really been great. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And I'm so glad you're in metal. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate awesome. it. Yep. Yep. All right, audience. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next one.